How many of you are ready? All right. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Obviously, not doing Mark this morning because we are uh, we are having Father's Day, and I have a I have a sermon on my heart um, that I, I pray will do the work that God intends it to do. In fact, before we even read, normally we read and then we pray. Let's let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's help um, and invite His blessing on this morning's sermon. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for this day. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you that we're alive and we're breathing, and we were able to come in this morning. Lord, for some of us, that's a bigger deal than others, and we rejoice that we have legs and we have lungs and we have life. And your word says that in you, we live and move and have our being. God, we are at your mercy to take the next breath, and we thank you for the gift that you've given us. Lord, if we're alive, if we're breathing, there's another opportunity to grow and to learn or to come to a saving knowledge of you. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of everyone here. It's Father's Day, and this is a message geared towards Father's Day, but Lord, I pray that every person here, father, mother, child, whoever's listening online, Lord, that you would take your word and do your work by your spirit. Lord, we ask for this and we thank you for it. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 24. We are going to start with verse 3. Title of my sermon today is Dad as a Fire Starter. Dad as a Fire Starter. So I did not coordinate that. I wish I was the guy that coordinated the sermon out six weeks in advance and said, let's order some fire starters, and I'll preach a sermon. It just worked out that way, and I was like, okay, praise the Lord. That's great. So, uh, But dad as a fire starter. We're going to read in Matthew 24. Does anybody know the significance of Matthew 24? The significance is this. It is the longest straight conversation that you hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an unbroken string of information in regard, Sermon on the Mount, we have quite a bit there, but in regard to the end times. Anybody interested in the end times? Anybody, Anybody as a kid, when I was a kid and I went to a church where the pastor was exceptionally good at scaring you to death, uh, in a very good way. He was really, he was great at teaching through the book of Revelation, um, and he did he did an exceptional job, and he always would try to confuse uh, and entice you to come back. He was very, very good. Um, but we all have grown up uh, in a time where people are always interested in speculating on what the book of Revelation means and how Daniel's and Ezekiel's prophecies tie in, and who's the Antichrist, and this is going to lead to this, which is going to lead to this, and then we have the New World Order, and blah, 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 right? All that stuff. Um, Remember, debit cards were the beginning of the New World Order. Anybody grow up and remember that in the 90s? We've had a lot of false starts uh, on the New World Order and the Antichrist, which is why I'm probably an amillennialist, but we can talk about that another day. Anyway, Jesus in Matthew 24 is answering a question. 
The question is, Jesus has told them, look at the temple, not one brick is going to be left here. And the disciples get him aside and say, when's that going to happen? And Matthew 24 is Jesus' answer. We're not going to read all of Matthew 24, but we are going to read verse 3 through 14. And we'll go from there. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you got the question? Sounds like a question you might ask. When's it going to happen? What's the signs of the times going to look like in the coming of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Now, I could keep going. We're going to stop right there. There is, according to Jesus, in the last days, lots of things that we're going to be able to recognize in answer to the question, what is the sign of these things? Now, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you that I think a lot of Matthew 24 has been fulfilled in AD 70. And I'm not, I don't have time this morning to explain all of that. But at the same time, we are still here, so there is some of Matthew 24 we're waiting to have happen. And one of the things that Jesus says that really stands out to me in this moment we find ourselves living in in the year 2022, where everything is turned upside down, inside out, and backwards, there is no way that you could go back in a time machine to December of 2019, which was not that long ago, and try to explain where we are today to yourself in 2019 without you saying, that's crazy. In two and a half years, this is what the world will look like? A global pandemic that totally changed everything in a lot of different ways and lots of things changing all over the globe and wars and panics and fears and hatreds that run really deep, really quick, fracturing. People can't talk to each other. Our own cultural unraveling, the morality. We are, we are distributing medicine to five-year-olds to stop their progress as a male or a female, 
There's a lot. There is a lot going on. I could go on and on and on and on. We find ourselves in a time, and I know I say this all the time, but I say it all the time for a reason. Because if I'm going to be a shepherd, the sheep have got to hear warnings. If we're all headed for a cliff and I'm not shouting, Cliff! then I'm not doing my job and I have to go stand before God and explain to him why I didn't warn people. So if I sound like a broken record, forgive me. But we're not living in grandpa's America. We are living in a time where all of the underpinnings of our cultural society, those underpinnings were Judeo-Christian values. You hear about that on the news all the time. We, We have trashed those and thrown them away. We do not want them culturally. Instead, what we want is a secular progressive utopia. And it's not working out real well. Because the only reason we had a stable culture is because we had Judeo-Christian values upholding the culture. When you remove the foundation, your society begins to crumble. That's what we're witnessing. That's just, that's my opinion. I'm not saying it's hopeless. I'm just saying that's what we're seeing. So with that in mind, verse 12 really stands out to me because we're in a unique place because America has been traditionally a Christian nation. So it, as I've said before, it is a normal thing for people to go to church. It's a normal thing for people to say they believe in God. It's a normal thing for people to have familiarity with hymns. You can, you can start John 3.16 and a sinner at work can finish it, can't they? That's because of the culture, but not because the sinner at work believes John 3.16. He just knows what it is. As we see our culture recede and get away from God and, and Christian values, as we see that happen, then the value that used to be on being a Christian, the value that was placed in our culture, that said, it's a good thing that we're a Christian, that also recedes, and what replaces it is a little similar to actually verse 9. They'll deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So the Christian's normal position that stands for Jesus is hatred from the nations for my namesake. If we follow Christ, it cannot come as a surprise that you are going to be hated. And the confusion for a lot of us is, and I will raise my hand first, is I kind of grew up believing that our job was to trick the world into seeing us as not that bad to make you feel like, well, look, they're good people and they're loving people and look, they have cool music and the pastor wears cool clothes and and they say cool things and they make good pop, pop culture references and we understand where they're coming from and everything is relevant and everything feels like like, like it's, well, it's absolutely no different than the life I was living outside of the church. But where opposition comes into play is when you just start saying, this, this, is, this is who God is, and this is his standard, Th- these are his commands, 
And once you start talking about commands and standards, you are already making people mad. And once you start telling people that outside of Christ there is no hope, and you must have His redeeming blood buy you back out of this corrupted world because you're born a sinner, well, that doesn't feel good to people either. We, we spent a lot of time over the last 50 years probably trying to turn the gospel into something that it isn't. We emphasize the God of love, and we totally put the God of wrath behind our back, and then at some point quit believing that God had wrath. So, many are going to fall away. Verse 10. Betray one another. Hate one another. The good news is, as many false prophets will arise right in the middle of that mess, and they will have messages, like they did in Jeremiah, to lead people astray. Do you know what the prophets in Jeremiah's day were saying? Peace, safety, everything is good. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, that's not untrue. It is true. His plan could be sell everything you have, go to a foreign country, and die at the hands of people who hate the message you preach. That could be the wonderful plan he has for your life. We, we, we gravitate towards peace and safety because who doesn't want it? In Jeremiah's day, they wanted it. And so when Jeremiah gets up and says, you are disobedient, you have broken the law of God, and God is sending punishment, they said, no, we don't want to hear that. They threw him in a cistern up to his neck. I'll let you do the imagination of what that was like. And here's the encouragement from Jeremiah called the weeping prophet because he wept over his nation who would not repent. Jeremiah had this many converts. Zero. Talk about a frustrating ministry. Zero converts to his message. And then Babylon comes in and takes them away, just like God said. Many false prophets are going to rise up, Jesus says, in the last days, with messages that are wrong and lead people astray. Verse 12 is where I really want to get to. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness. Lawlessness. What do you think that means? Without the law, it means I don't care what you say. I don't care what the standards are. I'm going to do what I want to do. No regard for what God has said. Lawlessness. Jesus says that a hallmark of the end will be lawlessness increasing, which results in a kind of despair in the hearts of people because love grows cold. In other words, what I believe Jesus is trying to say is, is that 
what appeared to be a relationship with God and love and goodwill, as lawlessness increases, this love is chilled, it's cold, it's frozen, it disappears. Because the very next thing he says is, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So his message and what he's saying about the end is that it's going to look like hearts are freezing solid into ice because of lawlessness and their hearts cold, love gone, which just exacerbates it and makes it worse. It's exponentially growing lawlessness more, love growing cold more, false prophets preaching into that kind of culture, leading more people astray, more lawlessness. The real Christians are being hated and persecuted, and then that makes it easier for people that do not, that kind of believe but don't really believe, the kind that just say, I like the cultural benefit of saying I'm a Christian, but I really don't want to stand up for Jesus if somebody corners me. It makes that person fall away completely, totally, and utterly, and a clear distinction begins to happen in between those who believe and those who do not. The love of many will grow cold. Now, Jesus is saying this, which means it is inevitable, totally inevitable that what he's saying is it, it's going to happen. And if you wanted to make a case that it's happening right now, you could probably do so fairly easily. It's inevitable that cold, dead-hearted, lawless people will increase. It is inevitable that many will fall away. It's inevitable that there will be wars and rumors of wars. It's inevitable that you're going to be hated and persecuted. And it is inevitable that false prophets will try to rescue you with sweet and smooth-sounding words to say peace and safety. You don't have to follow the commandments of God. Here's a new way to understand the LGBT community. The Bible doesn't really teach that it's wrong. And there will be multiple versions of that kind of thing. More and more and more. But here is what is not inevitable. There is nothing that Jesus is saying that says that your heart has to grow cold. There is nothing in here that says you have to follow what's happening. Nothing. You do not have to despair. You do not have to give up. It would be wrong to zero in on the lawlessness, the false prophets, and the wars and rumors of wars. Spend all of your time focused on that and despair. Because we, and dads, I'm talking to you this morning, dads, you have a responsibility as the head of your home to be a fire starter in the house to make sure that there is always a blaze burning so that there aren't cold-hearted people in your home. Dad, you are the ultimate driver of that reality to lead the home to keep a fire burning for Jesus. 
You need to be, I'm not going to do it again, but you spiritually need to be a fire starter at your house. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I was going to do the infographic, but I'm not going to do it, Daryl. I had an infographic because I, I did this. I looked uh, on the Census Bureau website and uh, this other organization that used the census data that in 2022, we are now at a place where one out of four kids does not have a dad, like totally absent, totally, completely, and utterly. And the reason I bring that up is, is just to tie it into the, the fact that the love of many growing cold, part of, part of what happens is a breakdown in, in families, total breakdown in families, and a redefinition of families. Here's what a family is. It's a dad, it's a mom, it's children. We can't redo that definition. Now, I know there are single moms. I know there are single dads. I know there are things that have happened. That is not, I'm not coming down on single parents. But what I'm saying is, is that biblically, that is not what God wants for you or for the kids. Did I tell you Deuteronomy chapter 6? We're going to start with verse 4. What God wants is healthy, whole families with a dad who is leading the way spiritually. I want you to hear how the book of the law describes it. And this is one of two or three times in Deuteronomy that this language is used. I just like what we get out of uh, this passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You may remember where that shows up in the New Testament. Somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Don't let anybody tell you that the Old Testament is just this unfeeling document of rigid law-keeping. It isn't. The commandment is to love God with everything you've got. Verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. If the love of many are growing cold all around us and our culture is running away from God as quickly as it can and you begin to be criticized for being a Christian, then you need Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 tattooed on your heart. If you want to literally get it tattooed on your arm or something, Isaac, I saw Isaac's head pop up when I said that, then, then feel free to do so. Because God is saying that we need to teach His precepts, His law, 
and in particular, that we would be people that love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, and strength, that we need that taught to our children all the live long day. And why do I say that? Because look at verse 7. You shall talk of them, the commandments, the words that I'm going to talk to you about, the Scripture. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You shall talk about them when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You are supposed to be, Dad, the fire starter, and the way that you do this is by having a steady stream of conversation with the family about God, His greatness, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His wrath, His joy, His omnipotence, which means He's all-powerful, His omniscience, which means He's all-knowing, the attributes of God, who He is, which means, Dad, to be a fire starter, you yourself are going to need some fire. And you're not going to get that by saying, I have to be a provider. I'm going to bury myself in my job and my wife can take care of the spiritual stuff. That is not the way it's going to work. You have got to lead. It's not that moms can't do it. And God bless all the moms over the millennia that have done it because dad was spiritual as a cinder block. You can't, but you can't use that excuse. Because, listen, my wife is more spiritual than I am. She is way more in tune and intuitive, and she just understands things that take me several days. Like, oh, oh, I, I see that now. And then she gets frustrated, like, it's what I said three days ago. Like, I, there's a, a thickness to the skull that God gave me as a man, and I just, it takes a while to route its way to whatever center of intelligence there is. But, Dad, you can't use your thick-headed Neanderthal skull as an excuse to say, she's going to do it. She's going to read the mushy Bible story at the end of the day. She's going to do it. Now, it's fine, moms, if you're doing it. But, Dad, you've got to lead this process in some capacity in your homes. You've got to be the reason the fire got started. Because if you're working overtime, you still need to say things like, did you read the did we read the Bible? Did we talk about God? Babe, are we doing are we talking about God enough in our daily life? Are we living our lives that is totally separate? And then on church we're like, oh yeah, we gotta we gotta be Christians today. Is that what we're doing? Because I'm just telling you that type of Christianity is disappearing. You can't survive like that. Not today. You could in 1982. I'm telling you straight up, you could. There's all, And the baby boomers can say amen. There's a lot of baby boomers that live in the breadbasket of goodness in America. And it's just like, eh, you go to church, do whatever you like. Everybody understands it's a, it's a Christian culture. That's eh, okay. It doesn't affect my life, though. I do what I want Monday through Saturday. But then on Sunday, I just put on a happy face and everything's good. You all know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not making this up. Culturally, it was easy to be a Christian. 
1983. Culturally, it's not easy to be a Christian in 2022. It's just not. Because the pressure of the world says, stop believing this stuff or modify. Listen to this false prophet. Reduce your seriousness. You're way too committed to the Scripture. It's probably not true anyway. Just try to be a good person. Jesus and Gandhi and Buddha, they're all the same. No. Dad, the love of many will grow cold. I will not have the love of my children grow cold in my house. Will not have it. I will set them on fire whether they like it or not. Now, they can leave and go do whatever they want because I can't dictate their life outside of my house. But you better believe if any one of my children turned away from the living God, I would pray and bother them with love. And you know what? I want to say that as an encouragement because a lot of you have children and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters that aren't living for Jesus anymore, but they used to. You don't have to give up in despair. You don't have to give up and say, they're too far gone or it's too late or I made too many mistakes as a parent. I've talked to lots of parents say, I've made mistakes. Well, so have I. Lord have mercy, the amount of dumb things that I've done. But it doesn't matter. Because if they're still breathing, and you're still breathing, then you still got time to go start some fires. Now it's different for my relationship with Arwen, who is eight. I can just sit her down in a chair and she, if I don't serve her dinner, she's not eating. So she's going to sit there and listen. But I mean, obviously it's not like that. I'm just saying that she's a captive audience at my house. When she's 28, she won't be as captive. But that doesn't mean that I don't go before the Lord and say, we taught her scripture. We taught her to believe. We modeled as best we knew how what a Christian mom and dad are supposed to be. So Lord, send laborers across her path. That would be my prayer. Lord, help me to have wisdom to talk to them. Help me start a fire. Help me start a fire. You don't have to be belligerent. You don't have to be confrontational. But love, if you see you see your children or people you love doing something destructive, don't you at some point say something? You do. And you do so out of love, not out of belligerence, not out of anger. You do it out of love. Something I, I was thinking about out of this, not just the teaching of Scripture, the reading of Scripture, the talking about it all the time. I, I mean, I've shared this before. My dad was great at turning life situations into Bible principle moments. And I've shared this before, but 
I'll share it for those of you who haven't heard it, because my dad would almost get angry. It wasn't anger. You'd have to know him. It was like deadly earnest. When he got that tone of voice, it was like everybody's like back stiffens up. You know the dad voice? You're like, oh gosh, I don't know what's wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. No, we're talking about the Bible, so why are we all standing like this? Because the, the way that he talked about it made you go, oh, okay, so you're brushing your teeth. This really happened. I'm not making this up. My dad said this on more than one occasion. Brushing your teeth, and dad's all calm, and then somehow Deuteronomy 6-7 is floating around in his heart that this is an opportunity as you walk by the way, or if you want to say as you brush your teeth, as you're living your life, my dad says, if you don't brush your teeth, you will get cavities, your teeth will rot. Right, son? Yes, dad, that is what they taught us at school. Because you know, that's why you get stiff, because you know that it's intense. And then he says, if you don't read your Bible and pray, the same thing's going to happen to your heart. Do you understand me? Yes, Dad, I do understand you. Yes. Okay. And then he wasn't angry, but he was intense over Scripture. All the time. Everywhere we went. And I am very thankful for that. Because as dumb as I was, as a 17 and an 18 and a 19-year-old, those moments don't ever go away from your children's lives. Dads, we need to have the fire ourselves, And the way that we get that is to stop looking at God as a chore. He is not a chore or a bore. It is not just some religious thing we're doing this morning. God put the stars in the sky and measures the galaxies by the breadth of his hand, the Bible says. He's named the stars the galaxies and the quasars, we don't even have an idea of really how big the universe is. We know it's still expanding. If God is the creator of galaxies and molecules that are infinitesimal, and the more we learn about the biomechanics of bodies and the world around us, the more amazing God becomes just as we peel back layers looking into the creation around us, how perfectly designed it is. We need to go to Scripture and go to God in prayer and say, Lord, my view of you is perhaps too small. My idea of who you are is completely wrong because I feel zero passion for you at all. I feel passionate about work, or I feel passionate about my favorite sports thing. I feel passionate about whatever, but I just don't feel anything towards you. We, we need to go to God and ask him to open our eyes to see wonderful things from his law so we can turn around and tell our kids while they're brushing their teeth about him. 
Dad, be a fire starter. Teach your children God's word when they're sitting down, when you're walking, at night, when you wake up. And I would say if you want something pragmatic and practical, that that would simply be read the Bible together and look for opportunities to talk about God. Read the Bible together and look for opportunities to talk about God. And if you're one of those that have children that are already grown and out of the house, um, you're not going to have the ability maybe to read the Bible together, but you can look for opportunities to talk about God. Here's my final point this morning. Anytime I preach a sermon like this, there is a spiritual wet blanket hovering over every dad, ready to be thrown upon the fire. And this is what it sounds like. But I don't understand the Bible. I'm not going to talk about it if I don't understand it. It's too complicated. That's why I want her to do it. It also sounds like, I don't feel it. I know it's the right thing. I just don't feel anything. Or maybe you don't say this, but you feel this. There's just too much to do. I've got too many projects. I've got too much at work. There's just too much going on. I'm too busy. And when I get home, I'm too tired. Which leads to the fourth thing that's a wet blanket. I have lost my temper way too much with my kids. I have said too many irredeemable things. I've done a bunch of stupid stuff. You may have committed sins and you're ashamed, and the idea of looking your kid in the face, knowing that you've done these dumb things, scares you because you're saying, I'm too imperfect, and they know it. Let's go over these wet blankets one at a time. I can't understand the Bible, or I don't understand it, or I'm a new Christian and don't really get it. I have got some good news for you. There has never been a theologian alive that understood all of the Bible. Not a single solitary one. You, you understanding it perfectly is never going to happen. I don't think we're going to understand it perfectly in heaven. I think we're going to grow in our understanding of who God is for eternity. So relax. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is your teacher, which means if I trust that, then I have to trust that the Holy Spirit will teach Abby, Hannah, Sophia, and Arwen. So I am not afraid to say, okay, girls, we're going to read this really complicated passage, or they bring a question. Abby's laughing because, because anyway. Um, they, they bring a complicated question. You know who asks the hardest questions? Eight, nine, and ten-year-olds. Dad, if God knew that Adam was going to sin, why'd he make him? Has anybody ever got that answered perfectly? But who asked that question? Ten-year-olds ten asked that question. Eight-year-olds asked that question. Don't be afraid that you don't have a perfect answer. Say, here's what I know about God. Here's what I know that Scripture says. Why don't we read some more Bible verses? Maybe we'll get a clue. Maybe we'll find something out. Why don't you read 
Romans and get back to me with a book report. Well, you don't have to do that because your kids will hate you for that. Um, I might do that. But, uh, but these become opportunities to talk, not opportunities to shrink away. Of course you don't understand it. You're a sinful human. But God gave us his word. And Jennifer and I were talking about this the other day. She was listening to the Bible in the morning, and she stopped, and she asked me a question. And, uh, and I said, you know, this brings up a really good point, that, that some of the scripture, the structure of the language is complicated. Has anybody noticed this? Have you read Romans? Have you, have you read it? Like, read it all the way through and tell, walk away from that going, oh, that's easy. Romans chapter 6 and 7, oh, child's play. The thing that I want to do, I don't do, but the thing that I should do, I don't do, and this, all that stuff. Who cares that you don't understand it? The Holy Spirit is our teacher. What is important is that we trust that God is who He said He is, He's our teacher, and that by talking about it and going over it, who knows? God may drop some nugget of insight into your kid that they regurgitate back to you and teach you something that has happened before. How many parents have had that happen? Your kid will say something, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Wet blanket number two. I don't feel it. I mean, I'm really not an emotional guy. I don't feel anything. Now, this maybe will be the most masculine thing I say. Do it anyway. I don't even know if I need to belabor that. If I went to work on the days that I felt it, I'd be unemployed because they would have fired me for job abandonment. You don't go to work because you feel like it. You go to work because you have a mortgage. I don't just I don't have to wait for a feeling. I do it and we talk about God not waiting for a feeling cuz I got to be honest, I got to got to be genuine, just do it. If there's an open door and an opportunity, share Christ with your children. Just do it. Wait around for a feeling. Who's got time for that? Here's what I know about God though. As you trust him, whether you have feelings or, or no, you get more feelings. You get more, oh my gosh, this is so good. You get more moments like that because you're trusting in him, not waiting on you to be the barometer that tells you whether or not you're going to pray or not, read your Bible or not, be a Christian or not. i got to wait for a feeling. That's why you're a mess. Quit waiting for feelings. But do not discount feelings. Feelings are good. God gave them to us. We are supposed to be joyful and excited about God. But there's a lot of times I'm just not. Do it anyway. You'll wind up with some feelings. There's too much to do. Wet blanket number three. Too much to do. Too busy. Well, that's a problem. What are you prioritizing? We always, this is, this is a horrible thing I'm going to say. We always do what we want to do. 
Because if you've ever been invited to a wedding and you didn't want to go, and you started hunting for reasons not to go, and then you found one, you had that little thrill of joy, oh, I don't have to go to the wedding. And now I have a real reason to tell them, and I can let them know I don't want to go. I don't want to drive three hours to go to your wedding for 45 minutes and turn around and drive back because that'll be $600 in gas. So, I mean, I love you, but I'll just look at wedding pictures one day when I visit your house. I don't want to go. Right? I'm not alone in this. Okay. My gosh, the pastor has real feelings. Horribly real. Excessively real. So when you feel that relief, what's really happening is that's the little green light that comes on the thing you wanted to do, which is not go. If you wanted to go to the wedding because it was your daughter, you take off work and you go. Because you have to, right? But you want to go. We always do what we want to do. Sort of. We go to work. But we're doing that because we want to pay the mortgage. What I'm saying is, is there's a greater overriding priority that causes us to do what we want to do. And we typically prioritize what we want to do based on what we want to do. So if you're finding that you're too busy, to spend this kind of time, even if it's just a little bit of time with your children, then you're too busy. Your priorities are backwards and inside out. They're wrong. It's just a flat, it's wrong. You have to reorganize what you're prioritizing. Because if you're prioritizing other things over your children, and then you comfort yourself by saying, it's for my children, it's not really for them. Or it's a misalignment of a good instinct. Your instinct to provide dad is correct. Your instinct to protect is correct. But those instincts can get warped and you find yourself disengaged from the people you're protecting and providing for. Don't do that. Do not fall prey to that. Do not allow work or hobbies or whatever else swallow up that 18-year, 20-year period you have with your children. Rearrange the priority so that you can spend some kind of time with your children. I know this isn't easy, but it is true. I've lost my temper too many times. I'm not perfect. My kids have seen me commit too many sins. This is wet blanket number four. This would be a great opportunity to model in front of your kids forgiveness and grace. When daddy yelled at you and lost his temper, I was wrong. There is nothing more powerful for you to look at your child and say, the way I reacted was wrong. I should not have done that. And the Bible tells me Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. And what I did violated that scripture. And daddy has held account to the scripture to be a good dad. And so I am apologizing to you because I wasn't a good dad today. That is a lesson they will not forget. It is an open door for them to know that you, as a dad and as a mom, 
This isn't just a Father's Day sermon. That you are fallible. You are not perfect. And then it becomes a wonderful opportunity to say, Jesus forgives us of our sin. 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I've asked Dad, to, I've asked God to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me. You have had a Bible lesson around your own failure. You don't need to apologize every single second of every single day to your children for everything you do wrong because you wouldn't. You'd spend a lot of time telling your kids. You don't have to air all your dirty laundry to your children, but when it directly affects them, it becomes an awesome opportunity to tell them about the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God. I've had to apologize to my kids several times because I'm an idiot. So are some of you. And your kids will have a much healthier understanding of who God is if you do not set God up to be a tyrant, taskmaster, demanding perfection. Instead, what God wants is an open, supple, pliable heart that admits with humility when they are wrong and trusts in Him for forgiveness and help. These four wet blankets are real. There's probably more wet blankets out there. But if you're going to be a fire starter, you have to acknowledge the wet blankets and say, I am not going to allow that to put the fire out in my home. Here is something about these truths as well. You're always in a position of needing to receive from God. Always. You're always in a position when you say, I don't understand it. You're in a position to say, Lord, help me understand it and help me talk to my kids about it. When you say, I don't feel it, you are in a position to say, Lord, work in my heart so that I am not callous and cut off. Do your work in me and help me to do what I need to do. When you say there's too much to do and God, I feel this pressure for work and gas is expensive, and food is expensive, and bills are out of control, and I'm just, I am loving my family because I'm worried, and I'm desperate right now. You can go to God with all of that and say, Lord, help me right here where I'm at. And when you've lost your temper, and you've committed sins in front of your family, and they would see, you're afraid that they're going to view you as a hypocrite, you have to go to God and say, Lord, help me with humility. Tell my child what I've done wrong and ask for their forgiveness, and show them your grace and mercy that I've received. Every one of these wet blankets is an opportunity for you to say, God, I need your help. I can't remember which of the Puritans prayed, Lord, help me to do what you've commanded me to do. That's what we got to do. So, start a fire at your house. You're going to see more and more spiritual snowstorms. The temperature is much colder than it used to be. 
which means the fire attracts people more and more. When it gets dark and when it gets cold, that's when a fire becomes more valuable. And we were picked by God to live in such a time as this. Think of it that way. Don't think of it as, which I'm guilty of, I wish I, wish I was 45 in 1985. Because I've had that thought. Not 45 in 2022. Instead say, God wanted me to be a dad right here, right now. God wanted my children to be born when they were born, and they're going to grow up in I don't know what kind of environment, but it becomes incumbent upon me as a parent to pour into their life so that they can deal with whatever is in front of them. That's why teach, teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. That's what we want to do. Let's all stand up. We are going to pray. We were going to have a baby dedication this morning, but um, the, the baby was sick. So uh, we'll, we'll do that at another time. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your grace. I know that some of us feel down because we all were thinking of are the things we didn't do. Lord, I'm thinking of all the opportunities I've missed to share you with my children. Lord, we thank you for your grace this morning. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we can start right where we're at today, from this moment. And we thank you, Lord, that you've been at work in spite of our weakness, in spite of our excuses. God, you're always at work. And we are trusting in you. Lord, give us courage to be fire starters in our home. God, give us courage to throw off these wet blankets and instead to start fires in our own heart and in the hearts of our children. Lord, we thank you for it. We're not going to do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would do unique things in our lives to make this a memorable Sunday, that we would be fire-starting dads in the home. Lord, I thank you for it. I give you glory and honor for it today. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. Dads, get a fire starter. It really will start a fire. Get some bacon. Get some other stuff. Have a wonderful day.